Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you for this really thorough introduction, um, Philip. And Justin, thank you for inviting me. Uh, i had been so looking forward to this uh, trip. And I thank Nahid, who's outside, uh, <laughs> For, uh, for doing a really perfect job in the logistics. And even the Nirvana Travel Agency has been fantastic. Um, uh, how many of you know Arabic? Mumtaz. Okay, so we're very good. The other thing that I did is I lost my glasses on my way here in Heathrow. And so if I wear these, it's not to be cool. It's just I want to see you <laughs> because they're prescription. Um, and I also want to say that it's been wonderful talking to different people today and seeing, kind of feeling the energy and the joy about the students. It's been really fantastic. So again, thank you. And let me start. Um, sometime in the third uh, quarter of the 18th century, the Damascene Greek Orthodox priest Mikhail Brek wrote the following. And I'm going to read it first in Arabic and then translate it into English. وأما نسى النصارى الدمشقيين فإنهم رأوا هذه الفرصة واطمأنوا من الحكام غشهم الشيطان وزافوا وتعدوا الحدود بما لبسهم وعصباتهم المسمى المسمى كبرلية الله لا يكبرهم وخصوصا بشربهم التتن في البيوت والحمامات والبساتين حتى على النهورة والناس مجتازة وما زاد على ذلك أنه كل نهار سبت يخرجوا بحجة زيارة أمواتهم للتل ويجتمعوا أجواق لشرب العرق والخمر والأكل والشرب والأهوة والعتورة واقفة ويختلطوا بهم حتى مع طول المدة ما بيئي مدخرة ولا مخيبة بل جميع زافوا Is that Siri listening to my voice? <laughs> I told you I project وتعدوا <laughs> الحدود so in English, as for the Christian women of Damascus, they transgressed all limits with their clothes and their fashionable headdresses called kubraliya. May God not grant them high status, especially for smoking tobacco in the houses and bathhouses and orchards, even on the riverbank while people pass them by. What is more, they go out to the hill every Saturday with the excuse of visiting graves and gather in groups to drink ara and wine and to eat and drink and take coffee while ill-bred men hung about and mixed with them. They engage in every scandalous behavior and pranced around and trespassed all limits. He ends his tirade uh, on women by using a colloquial proverb, these women ate the young grapes and, their and it was their men who had the toothache. You know, husram is very sour grape that when you eat, you just, you know, you have a toothache. So he's saying that they, that the women ate the, the husram and the men got the toothache. A few decades later, a Muslim barber from Damascus, Shehab al-Din Ahmad ibn Budair, wrote, خَرَجْنَا إِلَى السَّيْرِ وَجَدْنَا النِّسَى وَرُبَمَا كَانُوا فِي الْكَثْرَةَ أَغْلَبْ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ جَالْسِينَ عَلَى شَفِيرِ النَّهَرِ وهم على حول المرجة والتكية طول النهار بالمأكل والمشرب والتتن والأعوي كما تفعل الرجال وهذا شيء ما رأينا ولا الذين هم من قبلنا إلا في هذا الزمن In English We went on a picnic We arrived at المرجة and found women sitting by the river perhaps in greater numbers than men 
They remained around Al-Marja and Al-Takiyya all day long and were eating, drinking, smoking, and drinking coffee just like men. This is something neither we nor those who went before us have witnessed before these times. These quotations from two men of very different social backgrounds, the one is a priest and the other is a Muslim barber, but who nevertheless lived in Damascus in the same century. These two quotations have much in common. And I'm going to go through five points. First, the quotations come from books that were meant to be published, not from the author's personal notebooks. What is more is that these, these books were of the same genre and shared the same topic. They were chronicles, or what the, our authors called tarikh, which is history. In this particular period, tarikh uh, books were not about the past, but were records of events that occurred during the author's lifetime. In other words, they were contemporary chronicles. Chronicles are not to be confused with diaries. Both genres are similar in that they, uh, they are records of events penned down by an author who serves as a witness of events. But the significant difference is that the diary is written for personal or private use, while the tarikh is written for an audience. It is meant to be a public document. Further, while tarikh was not a part of the college madrasa curriculum, it has been quasi, it had been a quasi academic endeavor, generally written by scholars. And by the way, my talk is for a general audience, so the academics might want to quarrel with me, which is fine. We'll do it after the talk. I'm just generalizing at this point. This brings me to the second point. The identity of the author is quite unusual for such publications, such books. How many of you have heard of a barber who has written a history, whether in Arabic or any other language? Historically, with a, not with no with a few notable exceptions, tarikh or chronicles in Bilad al-Sham, which is the Levant, which is the uh, East, um, uh, Arabic-speaking Eastern Mediterranean, were written by the ulama, the scholars of religious sciences who served in a variety of functions, from jurists to judges to college professors to sermonists at mosques to leaders to prayers, etc. So reading and writing and the production of books, including history books, were activities that fell within the purview of the ulama, of the scholars. And though there is a long tradition of Christian history writing in the region, Christian chronicles historically were concerned with church and ecclesi ecclesiastical matters. The history of Mikhail Bureik is significant that it is meant to be a history of his city, Damascus, and not of the church. And of course, the Christian community is his main subject. But the important part here is he says when he starts his book, I am writing a history of Damascus. What is more, the barber and the priest were not only the only unusual authors of books of history in the 18th century. In the same period in Bilad al-Sham, I was able to find chronicles by two different soldiers from Damascus, by Shi'i agriculturalists, father and son from Mount Lebanon, by a court scribe from Hims, and by a Samaritan scribe from Nablus. While this is not a huge number, it is still remarkable. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first time in all of Islamic history that we have so many people of such different backgrounds author books, and they all happen to converge on the text of the chronicle, on the same genre. So I'm still in, in point two. Point three. 
The third shared aspect of, uh, uh, of and not only the two books that I talked about from which I quoted, but the older books of the authors that I just mentioned, uh, is that all the authors wrote in a combination of Fusha, High Arabic, and Ammiya, dialect. In this case, it's Levantine dialect. Most history books, especially those authored by Syrian ulama from the 18th century, had been written in High Arabic. While some scholars did use dialect now and then, their use was very circumscribed and was in the vein of a literary license. In the 18th century chronicles of the non-ulama, dialect and colloquialisms were used in abandon. And really, a lot of people who actually know modern standard Arabic don't know how to engage with these books. So number three, number four, um, is to note that the quotations is, uh, is that uh, um, that one cannot help but notice that the authors, the priest and the barber, are really irritated. They complain about the scandalous behavior of women and reproach them for trespassing, for crossing limits of the space allowed for men. The priest simply says they have transgressed all limit, and for the barber, he says they they do just as men do. So their comments elicit a social topography where certain behaviors are acceptable according to specific gendered and spatial lines. If women were to smoke at all, they should not smoke uh, in the outdoors by the river. If the Christian women were going to mix with men and drink ara and wine, they should not indulge uh, in it publicly by the cemeteries. Why are the priests and the barbers so upset? Why are they feeling so threatened by these perceived inappropriate behavior by women? Are they noticing some change in society that makes them feel so anxious? And this is a question I will answer later, but I will leave it like this for now. The fifth point about these quotations, which is also related to an earlier point. While women have always been and still are the object of derision and the wrath of men, then and now, East and West, in the instances, in the instances, in the instances cited above, the speaker is not the father or the brother who is giving directions, but men who are unrelated to the women they observe. So while the priest is perhaps expected to keep watch over his congregation, the barber takes on a role that is historically not his. And both, uh, and both do the chiding in pri privately, uh, not privately, but in a public text. Historically, it is the ulama who were expected to command the right and forbid the wrong. Al-amr bil-ma'roof wal-nahi al-munkar. It was the job of the ulama. Um, <clears throat> so where does this barber get the confidence to take on such a serious social role that had not been assigned to him? And writes his commentary in a book and not in the privacy of his home when he's talking to a friend. A friend. So in this instance, he's assuming a public role. The combination of the points above, the appearance of new authors of books in the field of history writing, the authors who are of different social backgrounds, whether of marginal or commoner backgrounds, and who, and who do not hail from the scholarly class of the ulama, and who use in their writing colloquial uh, without hesitation, and who feel threatened and anxious, but who have the confidence to assume a sense of authority, a social law, a role that had not been historically assigned to them. All of these are manifestations of a phenomenon. It's a new phenomenon in Bilad al-Sham of the arrival of new authors of various social backgrounds in the field of history writing. 
while these new voices are not exactly from the street. So this is kind of a little bit of an exaggeration. Uh, but they are as far away as possible from the centers of privilege and high culture. In this talk, I will try to identify and explain this phenomenon as a part of a socio-economic and political change that took place in the, in the, um, in the Ottoman 18th century. To show how the new authors and their chronicles represented a reflection and refraction of these changes. I will explore, explore with you what is new and unusual about the new books produced by our socially and religiously diverse authors, especially when it comes to narrative style and language. I will end by inviting you to think of the 18th century as a natural predecessor of the age of Nahda, or the Arab Renaissance, which took place in the following century and is generally considered to be the awakening as a result of the encounter with Europe after a long Arab decline under Ottoman rule. So this is what I don't want you to believe by the end of this talk. <laughs> Let me start with saying what the phenomenon is not. Most modern scholars usually attribute the emergence of new authors, especially of the sort that I have been talking about, uh, such as soldiers, agriculturalists, and a, a barber, to a sudden rise in technical literacy, that is, the knowledge of how to read and write. Usually they try to explain new authorship through examining new technologies, such as the printing press, or new institutions, such as schools or colleges. Um, uh, in our case... We know very well, thanks to actually Konrad Hirschler, partly in Germany, um, uh, that significant uh, sex, uh, segments of the urban population, including artisans, women and children uh, of various social backgrounds, uh, sorry, uh, and children of various so other and other social groups that fell outside the circles of the ulama were literate. So we're not talking about mass literacy here, but we know that a, a significant part of the population was literate. Uh, and certainly not in comparison to Europe, and, and certainly uh, more than what we had believed earlier. My point here is to dissociate the rise of literacy from the phenomenon of book authorship by people of artisanal, marginal, or non-scholarly backgrounds. While literacy in and of itself is a necessary first step, it does not in and of itself furnish the wherewithal to author a book. Rather, it takes a certain confidence, a certain authority for one to become an author. And that's why an author is called an author. It has, you have authority to, to be able to, to, to produce something that people will receive. So rather, authority comes from particular circumstances that allow or give confidence to a person to become an author. As such, I see this phenomenon as a literary cultural expression of changing social trends. Are you with me? Are you understanding where I'm taking you? Yes? Okay. So let me start by describing to you what happened in 18th century Ottoman Bilad Sham. The Ottoman authorities in Istanbul got overextended. The, war, the wars were many and their coffers were empty. In a genius move, they decided to delegate political and fiscal authority to local figures who resided in the provinces in exchange for ready cash. They did this by auctioning off land, or what was called malikane, to the highest bidders. So it was an auctioning of land, you know, so they sold the rights to taxes to people. This, this was quite lucrative to those who managed to win the bids, because as we say in Arabic, il mal bijur mal, 
So it was money pulled along money and the revenues for these extensive lands ended up in the pockets of these new local tax uh, collectors. So a new class of rich quasi-landowners emerged in the Levant. This new class appeared as, as notable households and included, included large retinues and extensive networks of benefit and patronage that reached to the simplest villages under the control of the Malikani holder, all the way to the imperial um, uh, capital, Istanbul. Um, and so this new class uh, were only the tip of the iceberg. Their emergence was a result and a cause for a much larger social uh, change, a flux that allowed opportunities for people to join new networks and threatened others of losing their positions in older counterparts. So just imagine when you have a whole class with new money, a whole group with new money, and they have a lot of interests, you know, you get the guy to sit at the customs and, and do work for you. And then you get your own barber and your driver and your, uh, you know. So a lot of people get employed and get into these retinues, right? So this is what happened in Damascus. So it's not just that there's new rich people. These rich people had with them or created avenues for other people to become rich as well. Politically, this translated into local rule. Historically, the Ottomans would send their own governors to the province. In the 18th century, the province of Damascus, which covered much of the Levant, Ottoman power was delegated to Al-Azm family, who ruled semi-dynastically for much of the 18th century with style and ceremony of a royal household. They were also given the authority to command the annual Hajj caravan to Mecca, a privilege that accorded them great responsibility and prestige. Add to all of this is the fact of intensified Mediterranean trade. The Levant witnessed the interest of French, English, and Dutch merchants who appeared on the Mediterranean coast in droves. This enhanced commercial exchange allowed for the rise, this, uh, allowed for the rise of new port cities such as Acre, Akka, and later Beirut. And much of this trade, of course, had to do with Damascus. Thus, 18th century Damascus witnessed the emergence of a new elite household, uh, new elite households and an influx of new wealth, and the city itself witnessed a reorientation and a facelift. The market, which had been traditionally based on the north-south axis, reflecting caravan trade between Aleppo and Mecca, changed directions towards the sea. The area saw the erection of at least 17 new mansions, including the famous masterpiece, Al-Azm uh, Palace. According to an urban historian, the urban historian Dorothée Zak, the 18th century was the golden age of Ottoman Damascus. So for those of you who know Damascus, we think when you go into the inside the old city, we think of most of the city as old, but actually most of these houses, celebrated houses, are from the 18th century. So in comparison to the longevity of the city, they're really, really new. And all of this is from the 18th century. The exhibitionism of the period was not limited to the flaunting of new wealth in grand buildings uh, lavishly adored, but in outrageous conspicuous consumption. Reports and rumors about luxurious multi-day celebrations of the weddings and circumcision parties held by the elite circulated around the city, much to the people's shock and rage. And even bodies were exhibited. While Damascene, inclu Damascenes, including women, had always gone on picnics, picnics, there seems to have been an increased interest in spending time in the uh, fresh air and in writing about this time outdoors. 
Although I do not entirely believe our priest and the barber that women's public fun was unprecedented, the fact that these women were wearing new fashions and were smoking in public after having been excluded from the male space of the coffee house and from evidence that we have from other Ottoman cities like Aleppo, Cairo, and Istanbul, it seems to me like women were up to something new and conspicuous. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something happening. One could say that in the 18th century, all of the city was a stage and unfolded for its citizens' leisure and conspicuous consumption. This rejuvenated Damascus with its new households, networks, and wealth allowed for new opportunities of patronage by the new elites to individuals and communities. Almost each one of the new authors that I mentioned experienced an enhancement in social position either as an individual or as a part of a community usually through an emerging household or a rising political figure. The barber Ibn Budair, for example, managed to depart from his family business of portering and get a job as an apprentice at one of the most prestigious hair salons in downtown Damascus, where the scholarly elites came to be quaffed and to have their beards trimmed. The customers of Ibn Budair's master barbershop represented the pinnacle of Damascus's cultural, cultural and economic wealth. As a consequence or to, to his services, uh, to the scholarly elite, Ibn Budair actually got a formal education with some of the notable scholars in town, and he, re- and he read works of jurisprudence, mysticism, and law. In other words, the new network which he entered allowed him great opportunity and enhancement in cultural capital and social position. As for Mikhail Burek, the priest, he was delighted with the new local governors, uh, governor Asad Bash al-Azm. The Azms, as you will remember, were the foremost representatives of the new socioeconomic and political order. Not only did Asad Pasha control a huge Malikani holding, but also managed to monopolize some of the grain trade. As a part of the new order, he served as the local and immediate delegate of the Ottoman Sultan. According to Burek, the rule of Asad Pasha was especially clement towards local Christians, who were relieved from paying onerous taxes and who were allowed to renovate churches. So according to Burek, the entire Christian community fared like the blossoms of April and May. So the cases of Ibn Budair and Buraik, like most of the other authors in my sample, show clearly how the new circumstances of the 18th century allowed social and economic enhancement for some individuals and communities who had historically fallen on the margins. It is precisely this enhancement, this amelioration in position, that gave people of such varied backgrounds the confidence that is the authority to speak. So they authored books to flaunt their new position in the publicity of the text. Simultaneously and remarkably, it is the very same changed position, the social flux from which they benefited, that made the barber and the priest and the others so anxious. For fear of losing the privileges that they historically had, such as male patriarchy, or of demotion from a newly earned position, such as the situation of the Christians under Lazm rule, the new authors used their books not only to flaunt, but also to monitor behavior, chide, judge, and, <coughs> and correct. Now they have the confidence to speak, so they use their chronicles to interrogate, comment, accuse, and reform. 
Thus, the chronicles represent a process of negotiation in the changing social circumstances. They do not only represent new voices or new authors, but a new kind of authority, an authority that had been historically reserved for the scholars. Given that the chronicles represent new voices by people who had been not conditioned or accustomed to being authors, they didn't come from scholarly families. Given this, what kind of books did these these people write? Are they merely imitations of the ulama chronicles whose works represent a tradition of over a thousand uh, thousand years? While some of our authors attempted to write in the ulama style, precisely because their original, uh, precisely because their original social and cultural milieus were not steeped in scholarly culture, the resultant, the resultant product, their chronicles, were also quite novel, both in content and in form. These authors brought into the text of history their literary customs and linguistic practices. That is, all of their old baggage, including unique narrative styles, colloquial expressions, and plenty of what we would consider today as grammatical and and syntactical mistakes. Let me take the example of one of the Damascene soldiers, Ibn Saddiq, who is another one of the 18th century new authors. The following is an event uh, of a battle against Egyptian rebel forces taking place outside Jaffa in Palestine. The Damascene army is dejected because their allied troops have not arrived and the promised munitions have never been found. The head of the troops has to beg a contingent to go out on a reconnaissance mission to find out whether the other armies are coming or not. They accept, but only hesitantly. Here is the story. حسين وعثمان آغا بن شبيب أرو الفاتحة وركبوا وركبوا واشتغل حظ عثمان باشا فصاروا في الليل مسافة أربعة ساعات حتى وصلوا إلى جسر يقال له جسر العوجة فما رأوا أحد فرجعوا إلى التل وحولوا هنيك عشان يشربوا لهم فنجان قهوة ويناموا ساعة في الليل وفعلوا ما ذكرنا وركبة الخيل وطالبين لخيام فولى الليل وبان لهم الصباح وهم سائرين فطلعت عليهم أرنبة لأمر يريد لا لأمر يريده الله فحطوا الخير وراها وانحدرت بالنزول من من ذلك التل إلى وادي والخيل وراها فلما اطلعوا فرأوا مقدار ميتين خيال من عسكر المصاروة حسين وعثمان أغا recited the Fatiha they mounted and left the, uh, and left and Uthman's good luck struck they proceeded at night for about four hours until they reached a bridge called Auja. They did not see anyone, so they returned to the tell and aimed to go there in order to have themselves a cup of coffee and to sleep an hour of the night. They did that. Uh, they did uh, what we said. They rode their horses aiming to go to the encampments. Night faded away and daylight appeared to them. While they were riding, a rabbit appeared uh, to them for a reason that is only known to God. So they de- directed their horses in chase of the rabbit, which ran down the hill and up the valley, uh, up, the, up the hill and down the valley. The horses followed suit. When the riders looked up, they found about 200 horsemen from um, the Egyptian army. And of course, in the end, the, the, the Damascenes win. This cup of coffee detail, Yishrabulhum Fijan Ahwe, expressed colloquially, is rich 
the expression is typically used to denote the pressure of time. One does not have the opportunity to even have a cup of coffee, a basic necessity. By using this colloquial expression, which denotes the mundane desire of the riders and mention their need to steal an hour of sleep, Ibn Siddiq familiarizes and humanizes the dejected and tired cavalrymen, thereby provoking their, the sympathy of the audience. And what of the invocation of Uthman's luck? The author intimates his familiarity with Uthman's invisible qualities, such as his luck, thus allowing the reader to come unusually close to the protagonist. Um, uh, uh, this is reminiscent of modern fiction where the reader gets to mysteriously know the traits of a character in a novel through an omniscient narrator. And what, if, what, is, uh, and what is of the sudden appearance of the rabbit? One wonders how many army contingents in this world get so distracted by a rabbit as to chase it up the hill and down the valley. Here again, Ibn Siddiq humanizes his warriors who forgot about their mission in pursuit of a small, harmless animal. However, there's also dramatization in the miraculous. The rabbit is what leads the riders to their enemies who are taken by surprise and beaten. Is all of this because of Osman's luck? We don't know. But we are, we will be, you will be pleased to know that the episode results with the victory of the Damascenes over the Egyptians. The reader or listener cannot help but be pleased with the result of the encounter, as by now Ibn Siddiq has successfully won our sympathy uh, for the Damascene party. Ibn Siddiq's chronicle, then, is a story. It is a history disguised as narrated drama. Let me quickly show you his language. All of these are uh, typos or misspellings. All of these are grammatical mistakes. All of these are, uh, are uh, colloquial expressions. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just see how fraught the text is. While Ibn Siddiq's chronicle represents drama in the guise of storytelling and possibly anticipating modern fiction, Ibn Budayr's chronicle employs a different kind of dramatization, a kind that immediately is connected to the pre-modern oral popular epic. What we call today a sira shabiya, like those Antara and Abla and Dat al-Himma and Saif ibn Diyazan. These were popular epics that were recited by a storyteller from memory and were performed at the coffee house or a barber shop. And Damascus' last storyteller of a Naufara, the famous Naufara coffee house, died only two years ago. And surprise, surprise, his name is Al Halaq as well, um, which shows the affinity between storytelling and barber shops and the coffee houses. The genre of the popular epic is characterized by its heroic characters, its cadence and rhyme, and the fact that it renders colloquial expressions into fusha and conversely colloquializes high Arabic. So here is an example from the Barber's Chronicle that is very reminiscent of the popular epic. فسألنا عن ذلك السبب فقيل لنا إن أخو زوجته جاب امرأة إلى بيته وكانت من الدائرات فنهاه عن ذلك وقال له إيش هذه الأفعال تتلف نساءنا والعيال فنهره وأراد ضربه وكان من الجحال فهذهب إلى أكابر الحارة وأخبرهم بذلك الشان فمعيبوه وشاغلوه بالكلام لأنهم غاصين جمعا إلى فوق الآذان 
فذهب إلى جامع الدقاق وصلى الصبح مع الإمام وصلى على نفسه صلاة الموت وصعد المنار ونادى يا أمة الإسلام الموت أهون ولا التعريس مع دولة هذه الأيام ثم أرمى نفسه ورحم الله وعفى عنه On the fourth of Ramadan a man threw himself off the top of the minaret of Qbibat neighborhood and died His name was Hassan ibn al-Sheikh Yusuf al-Rifai We asked about the cause It was said to us that his wife's brother brought a woman of ill repute to the house Hassan forbade him from doing this and said, What actions are these? You corrupt our women and children? The brother-in-law, being an ignoramus, chided Hassan and wanted to beat him up. So Hassan went to the neighborhood notables and told them about the matter. They shamed him and distracted him, um, uh, uh, him with talk as they were collectively plunged to the ears with their own interests. So he, he went to Daqaq Mosque, performed the dawn of prayers with the Imam, then prayed upon himself the prayer of the deceased, climbed up the top of the minaret and cried out, All community of Islam, dying is better than pimping with the state of this time. And then he threw himself, may God forgive him and have mercy upon him. This narrative is like a scene from a play with dialogue quoted in direct speech. It represents a plot whose resolution is a bold anti-notables proclamation and then suicide. Unlike the popular epics where the hero survives despite formidable obstacles, in our episode, the hero ends up killing himself and indeed his, suici his suicide is his heroic act. Uh, this sentiment, the heroicness of suicide, which is celebrated in our modern-day novels and movies, is rather unusual for pre-modern uh, literature. Whether the story is true or not, the important thing is that Ibn Budayr believed that it happened, and more importantly, he saw it as a sign of social decay and a reason to blame the notables for failing to provide the necessary moral guidance, which is one of the main themes of his chronicles and the reasons for his irritation. In order to emphasize the gravity of the situation, he dramatizes the story by using the form and registers of the popular epic. The idea of a plot and its resolution, the rhyme which lends dramatic cadence, and the colloquializing of the classical and the classicalizing of the colloquial, which I can sit with you for half an hour to show you how, but I won't do that for now. Ibn Budayr, like Ibn Buraik, reverts to colloquial proverbs. We say in Arabic, right? But this is classicalized. Um, so he's classicalizing something quite colloquial. As many of you know, Arabic is described as diglossic, with fusha high Arabic and classical Arabic uh, uh, or classical Arabic on the one hand and dialect Amiya on the other. The word fusha means eloquent and is associated with the scholarly, the classical, the elite and the refined, while Amiya is comes from am, which is the popular and the vulgar. Many modern scholars and editors have looked upon the 18th century chronicles with disdain because they are considered to be linguistically weak. They are rakik, you know, the, the language is, is weak. These modern scholars and readers see this supposed weakness of language as a part of an alleged decline of Arab culture under Ottoman rule. They are not able to make the connection between this collective departure from the literary convention of Fusha in the Chronicle on the one hand with the fact that we have new authors from different backgrounds and who are non-scholars. In other words, 
With the new authors, the language of the Chronicle is liberated from the literary convention set up by the ulama themselves, which practice distinguish between the textual spaces appropriate to the classical and colloquial registers. Indeed, most of our authors wrote in what in today's colloquial proverb we say, This expression, uh, uh, means literally in eloquent Arabic and fasih and fusha are very much related. But ironically, it is in fact itself a colloquialism that is used to refer not to classical Arabic at all, but rather to the idea of clear and expressive communication. So it's about getting the point across. So when you tell someone, it means just be straight to the point. Tell me clearly what you're saying. So what they were doing here is actually speaking in whatever language uh, that helped them make the point. And so what we see here is these authors represent an example of Arabic as a live language being instrumentalized in a myriad ways for clearest expression to to suit their circumstances. The 18th century Arabic of our chroniclers was not a language in decline, but one that was expressively alive and varied. Let us leave language for now and go back to the two quotations, the rabbit battle scene and the minaret suicide for their content and narrative style. While one may expect a battle episode like the one related by Ibn Siddiq to appear in Ulama Chronicles, a lot of Ulama Chronicles uh, talk about uh, war and skirmishes. Uh, but but the unusual unusual closeness to the characters and their mundane habits from drinking coffee to chasing a rabbit are subjects that are not accustomed in scholarly chronicles unless you look at actually some Egyptian chronicles in a particular period. As for the kind of stories of prostitutes and a suicide that we encounter in the Barber's Chronicle, Chronicle, these do not make it into the chronicles of the scholars as they would be considered lowly, gossipy, and inappropriate topics for the refined taste of the ulama. While the events narrated in in these chronicles are supposed to be real events, there is something very fictional about the way they are related. They constitute plots and their resolution, instances instances of direct speech and general drama um, in in general. And the kind of fiction has a bit of a modern smell to them. The heroicness of the suicide act or the familiarity with Uthman's luck, um, all of this smacks a little bit of modernity. So let me now invite you to think about, uh, with me, about how the Chronicles might have anticipated modern literary forms, unless people are bored. I can stop here. No? Um, While the events narrated in these Chronicles... Oh, okay. We uh, we cannot think of an Arab modernity without invoking An-Nahda or the Arab Renaissance, which is a social, literary, linguistic movement that occurred in the second half of the 19th century and the first quarter of the 20th century. In Egypt and in Syria, this was exemplified by the explosion on the scene of printed newspapers and journals and the rise of the figure of the journalist, the critic, the intellectual, and the reformer, uh, whether it is secularist or Islamist. All of these are modern categories. This has been explained as a result of the encounter with the West, the importation of the printing press, of liberal ideas, and of new Western literary forms. These new imports, it is believed, undermined the legitimacy, authority, and hegemony of the ulama, who had been seen as the sole producers of knowledge and the guardians of society and moral values. 
While certainly the printed newspaper was a new and imported form, but let us consider how new it really was. The newspaper's main marker is its date. Its purpose is to announce current daily events. Its content is about contemporaneity, that is, about announcing contemporary occurrences. Although the 18th century chronicle, which were called history, uh, tarikh, uh, they, were exclu- uh, they were exclusively about the present, about the events that took place during the author's lifetime. The chronicle, too, is organized around the date, since its main intent is also to relay contemporary events. Some ulama chronicles and some of our modern editors of the chronicles even called them hawadith yawmiya, or yawmiyat, that is dailies or daily events. And while the chronicle written by hand cannot have the same extensive circulation or the fast expiry date as the printed newspaper, it was the only pre-modern written form of relaying news outside of personal letters and the official government public criers. In other words, the chronicle was a sort of local pre-print newspaper. The figure of the Arabic public, the Arab public intellectual or journalist or reformer is also seen as a Nahda figure, one who accompanied the modern newspaper, which he took as his platform. But the 18th century author, as we have seen, uh, were also new and they took their chronicles as their stage. They felt they had the authority and took it upon themselves to act as society's conscience and consciousness. They commented, questioned, interrogated, chided, instructed, and reformed. They were public critics. And while they never offered a radically new vision of society, they managed to undermine the hegemony and authority of the scholars or the ulama. The figure of the scholar himself, by the way, was not entirely lost. He re-emerged as a reformer in the 19th century, but his hegemony in terms of his production of knowledge and his social guardianship was not broken by the intellectual and his newspaper, or the modern intellectual and his newspaper, but a century earlier by a barber, a priest, and soldiers, and their handwritten books. In In conclusion... The variety of authors of history who appeared on the stage of the Chronicle in the 18th century was a remarkable phenomenon that reflected social and political change and vibrant condition that allowed many new voices to be registered in books, which were public texts. These new authors acquired the confidence and the authority to use the text of Tarikh to negotiate uh, the new changed realities and assumed the role of the social and moral guardians of their communities. They spoke in a variety of registers and, to- registers and told events in narrative forms that they brought in from their backgrounds, where history served both as the preprint newspaper and also a dramatized story with attributes related to modern fictional forms. This was not a sign of Arab decline under Ottoman despotism, let's put it this way. Rather, this was an indication of a changing and vibrant society. Nor was the Nahda such a rupture as modern scholarship and our uh, school textbooks have made it sound. There was local conditions, local agents who were accustomed to writing and reading and listening and hearing chronicles. So when the printing press arrived, they took to the printed newspaper really, really fast. Journalistic culture exploded not only because the importation of new Western ideas, but also because something had happened locally to make the switch from a scribal chronicle to a printed newspaper a very easy transition. 
The Nahda was also about linguistic reform, where modern standard Arabic, under the guise of simplifying and making Arabic more capable of articulating modern and scientific concepts, was created. Once the language of the text was standardized, the varieties of Arabic and the linguistic liveliness that we witnessed in our texts were not again allowed again to enter the text. And while the Nahda did allow for new figures and new forms of self-expression to appear, since then, no barber ever wrote a history. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.